Richardson. Stopped by Platt. Here's Steve Bold. And it's Adams. Put through by Bold. Would you believe it? That sums it all up. Hello there, and welcome back to another episode of That Sums It All Up. It's our first podcast of the new year, 2022. Happy New Year to you all. I hope everyone's entered the year in a positive way and that you and your families are as well and as healthy as can be. Arsenal started the new year with a fixture against Pep Guardiola's Manchester City. It was a 12.30 kickoff on New Year's Day. For those of us who made it up in time, the stage was set and what a spectacle it was. Huge waves of emotions pulling us this way and that. Unfortunately for Arsenal fans, it didn't go our way, but there was plenty of positives to take away from the game. Here with me to talk through it all, as always, is Johnny. Um, hello, Johnny. Happy New Year. How are you on this fine January morning? Happy New Year. Um, you can probably tell by the sound of my voice. I've been better currently in isolation with covid it's not that bad. It was quite bad a few days ago. It's sort of getting progressively better and better. But, um, you know, we're getting along. Shame that the game tonight has been postponed, Arsenal-Liverpool, because that was really getting me through <laughs> my isolation, sort of looking forward to that. And, uh, and I've had that ripped away from me. Unfortunately, obviously, Jürgen Klopp tested positive. Uh, then Pep Linders tested positive and they had quite a few players. I think it was something like 9 to 11 players out with COVID and injuries. Obviously, Mo Salah, uh, Sadio Mane. I think Naby Keita as well is off to the Africa Cup of Nations mm-hmm. too. Yeah. don't think Joel Matip's going with Cameroon. I don't think he plays for them anymore, but he had COVID as well. But anyway, so they, they requested a p- postponement and obviously got what they wanted, which is a bit of a shame because uh, everyone was looking forward to it. And... I don't know. I think there's there's been a precedent set in the Carabao Cup. I think it was Leighton Orient earlier on in, in the earlier rounds uh, requested a postponement and then had to sort of forfeit the tie. And I know circumstances are different at the moment, but how did you feel about the postponement? Because I know a few Arsenal fans and, and on Twitter, people were a bit upset in the way in which Liverpool requested a postponement for this game, but then are happy to go ahead with the game in the FA Cup against Shrewsbury at the weekend. Where does the where does the where does the where's the line for you? Because obviously, perhaps they can play a weaker team or, or younger team uh, against Shrewsbury and and sort of get by. And maybe this is more of an important game because it's a semi final. I don't know how you see it. I guess look from a personal perspective, I was upset that the game was postponed because for obvious reasons, um, we want to play this Liverpool team when they're at their weakest. And I think they would have been at their weakest tonight. They were without, obviously, the AFCON players that we've mentioned, but also Alisson wouldn't have been available. Firmino wouldn't have been available. Uh, and Thiago also wouldn't have been available because they would have all been isolating still. They're obviously now all going to be back in the picture um, for the first and second legs. So it's that that's uh, a bit of an issue. Look, they're not going to have Mane or Salah the entirety of the semi-finals because both are taking place over the next fortnight but it is it's you know that they are objectively a better team than us and a stronger squad than us so if we could play them at a time when they were weaker it's obviously preferable um but aside from that i think it's worth noticing that, or noting that their fa youth cup game which is supposed to be tomorrow has been 
postponed, which indicates that they they do have quite a serious outbreak of COVID. And I think they wanna they're clearly trying to get that youth game postponed so some of the players are being protected from the under eighteens and under twenty three squad, which will then play against Shrewsbury in the FA Cup over the weekend. We'll we'll know very clearly how how um we'll know very clearly like how significant their COVID outbreak was when we see their squad for the FA Cup game. Uh, and if it's littered with names that we don't recognise and numbers above 50 on the backs of shirts, it will be quite clear that uh, they, they really couldn't have played this game. And if that's the case, then look, everyone's getting COVID at the moment. It's very, very prevalent. And, uh, and player welfare is important and it would have risked Arsenal players getting it. And so maybe it was the right thing to do, but time will tell. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's important to note, you know, they, they've they've closed down the training ground. I think they've closed it for 48 hours minimum. Obviously, manager, assistant manager, plenty of first things. <laughs> the most important thing is player welfare. And when you've got a training ground closing down, I think it sort of stands as quite a serious outbreak. So, of course, it's a bit frustrating and Arsenal fans are biased in the sense that they want to play Liverpool at their weakest. But, yeah, I agree with you that I'm I'm fine with whatever and you know I think I mean it was uh, it was sort of in the press yesterday it was reported in the way that Liverpool have uh, sort of um, given up their home advantage in the second leg so at least you know we've got the away leg first and then the second leg is at the Emirates whether that benefits us or not I'm not sure but you'd like to think that maybe it does so now obviously we're not playing this evening we've got the uh, Nottingham Forest game in the FA Cup on Sunday as it stands. Uh, I think we're all right COVID-wise. Obviously, Mikel Arteta tested positive uh, last week, so he was unavailable. He wasn't present at the Emirates during the Man City game. He had a few other cases in the squad, but I think those have largely passed. And, you know, they were mainly fringe players, not that that matters so much in terms of player welfare, but it looks like we're all right. I think Nottingham Forest had their last game postponed, so there may be a chance of it being postponed um, and then hopefully we'll have the first leg at Anfield next week on Thursday followed quite quickly by the North London derby on the Sunday uh, and then Liverpool again on the Thursday and then Burnley on the Sunday so it's it's a pretty busy couple of weeks um, in terms of you know fixtures and we're obviously now without a few players I mean most most importantly I guess Thomas Partey um, and then you've got Mohamed Elneny, Nicola Pepe, and then Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang all off to the AFCON. So we'll sort of keep an eye on that as well. But look, let's um, let's get on to, you know, it seems a while ago now. I mean, it was on Saturday with Thursday. Um, but Arsenal played Manchester City on New Year's Day. I don't know how you feel about it now, but I feel... I found that first half, I, I don't know if I'd felt, and I was probably still a bit sort of uh, giddy from my New Year's Eve sort of celebrations, but I, I, I can't remember feeling like that watching a game. And I, I wasn't at the stadium, um, but I, I couldn't stop smiling. I couldn't stop laughing to myself as I was watching the the quality with which the side were playing. And I know it ended in, in massive disappointment and there was a lot of contention during the game but once that sort of settled a bit and I gave myself a bit of distance I sort of re um 
I got back in touch with just how I was feeling in that first half. And those are the emotions that I've largely got at the moment. Um, was there anywhere that you wanted to start in discussing or starting to discuss that Man City game? At the beginning? At the beginning. Let's do it. <laughs> team, I mean, the teams, they were pretty much what you expected from our team, I thought. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, Takahiro Tomiyasu was back in at right back. Um, he missed the last game from COVID. I think he was also, you know, he was an injury doubt even before he got COVID as well. So to come back in and then to put in the performance he did, which we'll get on to, I think was unbelievable. And, and I think even more evidence of just what a brilliant signing he's been and why he's, you know, my signing of the year, because he really showed how excellent he was. But we'll get on to that. And I think the only other thing, there was a slight uh discussion as to whether Emil Smith Rowe would come back in. Um and I think the obvious guy that would maybe come out for him was Gabriel Martinelli. But I'm glad that he retained his place because he's playing so well at the moment. And I don't think you can you can take him out when he's playing like this. And and some people would have said, oh, it, it would have been the more conservative, maybe like game management approach if you know Smith Rowe comes in. He's maybe a bit more sort of like, I mean, I don't even know if you can say he's more defensively uh, adept because Martinelli's great at winning the ball back but you know it would, it would have maybe been the safer approach but Smithrow still on the bench um, and we'll get the, maybe there's a little bit to discuss about that as we get on to uh, discussion later on and then there was no Mikel Arteta um, which was a first and Albert Stoivenberg was was in charge I think Steve Round also had COVID um, a sort of second uh, Arteta's right hand man alongside Stoivenberg so yeah, no no changes really to the lineup. Man City lined up sort of how I expected as well. They'd rested uh, Raheem Sterling and uh, Riyad Mahrez in the week. I was quite pleased to see no Phil Foden in the squad. Um, not that he would have started maybe anyway, but I think maybe COVID or fitness issues or something. But we, so we lined up pretty strongly and... I think that first half performance was exceptional. Uh, the word that I used the, the other week to describe the work Arteta's doing and, and obviously in slightly different context, but it really was truly exceptional. Mm. Um, as mm. I said, I couldn't stop smiling. I was, I was sort of, yeah, I was really taken aback by just how well we were playing and the way in which we were exerting ourselves and imposing ourselves on City, who are the best team arguably in the league and, one of the best teams in the world. Um, yeah, where where would you like to start in terms of of taking it apart? I know we, we got the goal. I can't remember exactly what minute it was, but relatively early, and it was quite clear quite quickly that we were we were going to have maybe a good performance, especially in that first half. Yeah, I think the goal was actually it was like the thirty fourth minute, but it felt yeah. earlier than I think it was because we there was just so much sustained pressure on them. Mm. that it was, it was sort of evident that we were going to score. For me, it's really important looking at that first half to contextualise it and say, well, this was against, as you said, Man City, but like this Man City team, we've not scored a goal against them in, in like two and a bit years. 2019 was the last time we scored a goal against them. Koscielny, who was the Arsenal captain, scored that goal um, you know, they routinely have been used to just 3-0 wins home and away against us season after season. We haven't laid a glove on them. And we and so 
it's not like this was a great performance against one of sort of the top teams. This was really against the team that have just consistently trounced us. And we flipped the switch and we're all over them. I've not seen uh, another team put Guardiola's Man City under 45 minutes of consistent pressure up the field. I just haven't seen it in the league. So it's really, I would, I would agree, it, is, it was exceptional. It was really, really exceptional. And like you at halftime, I was just bowled over by the number of performances that were sort of really high calibre. I think we would all say parties. Uh, whole game, actually, not just the first half, but mm. his whole game was probably his best appearance in an Arsenal shirt. Mm. You've mentioned Tommy Asu. Um, I think Ben White had a really good game. Mm. I, think, I mean, I think everyone had a good game. Even when we went down to 10 men, we didn't collapse. We didn't then let in two or three goals or even two or three big chances. You know, we, we kept ourselves solid. We had chances. They had chances. And we took it right the way through to the 94th minute where they got a lucky break and, and fine, they scored. But, you know, it was, it was a really, really, really promising performance mm. um, that hopefully gives the squad um, a lot to go off of. Absolutely. I mean, look, let's just take it back to, and I think it's, it's, it's really important that we start our discussion by, first of all, just uh, highlighting the difference in the level of performance that we've been accustomed to when we play Manchester City. Like we, as you say, them and Liverpool more recently over the last few years, like it's just been a different gravy. Like we haven't been able to lay a glove, as you say. And, you know, I think that was best exemplified at the beginning of the season where, look, plenty of extenuating circumstances but um we lost 5-0 and we got absolutely battered I think we had like a few good minutes right at the beginning which is interesting because I remember being like wow like this is this is interesting and there was a tiny flash in that 5-0 of about five minutes where I was like wow we're really going for them and then it completely dissipated and it's interesting that this time out with a completely changed starting 11 we were able to sustain it but you know we lost 5-0 to them in the um in the, I think it was the third game of the season and I mean, interestingly, there was so much difference to the team, but by the same, by the same token, uh, Granite Xhaka got a red card in the, in the game where we lost 5-0. In this game, he conceded a penalty. You know, there's a similarity to strike there. But, you know, you look at the team that was out in that 5-0 game. I've just got it up here. You had Bernd Leno in goal, which, I mean, yeah, he's obviously been uh, replaced by Aaron Ramsdale. And we were playing five at the back that day. So we had Cedric Suarez at right wing back. Then we had a back three of Callum Chambers, Rob Holding and Sead Kalasanach, And then Kieran Tierney at left wing back. I mean, that is, when you compare that to the sort of security that now we've found in Ramsdale, Tommy Yasu, uh, Ben White, Gabriel and Tierney at left back. I mean, it's, it's incomparable, the, the level of quality. So I think you know, we can compare the levels of performance and be astounded by how much progress we've made. But in a simple way, the, the the difference in level between that back five and our back five at the time, and also even having, you know, a sort of, I mean, Aubameyang started that day against City and I think, you know, he was pretty, pretty marginal as a figure. And you compare that to the sort of attacking performances and even seeing Saka and Martinelli sort of, I mean, I haven't seen players hurt Man City like Saka and Martinelli did. And I know, you know, we only scored once, but they were, I mean, hurt, they were all over them. 
And that's what I loved, I think, most maybe about that first half was the threat with which Martinelli on the left-hand side, you know, he had Cancelo on toast um, and Bukayo Saka as well was just like, you know, every time he got the ball, there was about five players around him or something like that, which just shows. But I think before we sort of look at the goal, I think the the press that the team uh, sort of coordinated the high intensity, the aggression, the commitment, the drive, the the impetus to move the ball quickly going forward, um, even moving the ball from side to side in quick transitions. Um, we had that cutting edge. We had that threat. And Man City, to be fair, you know, Guardiola was sort of commenting after the game that they just didn't have the energy. Maybe that may be the case, but we 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 took advantage of that and we and we really pressed them and made. I think there was a really well-made point on match of the day they had a lot of the ball but they did not have the ball in the positions that they wanted it they don't want the ball sort of you know uh far back but we were really sort of uh submitting them to to you know they, they weren't able to do they weren't able to play their game they weren't able to exert themselves so I think we looked excellent and we dominated them we pressed them into submission we were in their face it was so good and we got the goal that we deserved. Um, and I think it was a great goal in the end. It was a great bit of play. So I don't know if you you recall sort of the passage of play, but I don't know what stood out for you in that first goal. Well, it's Ben White who wins the ball back initially from De Bruyne, plays it in. Does he play it to party or Xhaka? There's like a one-two in midfield. It then gets sprayed out to, to Tierney and then it goes to Saka or something like that. Yeah. No, I just yeah, wanted to, I, think, I think that's what it is, but I, I haven't watched it back. Yeah, I just wanted to to say that about Ben White. I think there were a few times in that first half when he was really stepping up and mm. sort of breaking that that line of the back four. And I initially was quite like, well, like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing that? But in the end, you know, he was winning the ball back. He won the ball back from De Bruyne, and that sort of instigates the the goal. And it's a really smooth passage of play. Um, Tommy Asu gets the ball, plays it into uh, Thomas Partey, who then plays it into Xhaka, and then Xhaka switches it out to Tierney, I think it is. And then, yeah, like you say, it's a really lovely pullback. Lacazette does really well to sort of block Nathan Ake off, and Saka sort of drifts into that half space. And just it's an exceptional sort of composed finish, just first time into the corner, Edison no chance. And I loved the fact that Saka scored against Manchester City. Um, I think it was a real, you know, we've been sort of raving about Martinelli and Erdegaard, but, you know, Saka's right up there with his level of performance recently. He's really starting to add goals to his game and consistent threat and sort of capping that that period of progression off with a goal against Manchester City. And to see how seriously they were taking his threat was, was brilliant to see, you know, to see our young players Really, really tearing Manchester City apart. Um, and I love the celebration as well, sliding over and going into the Arsenal fans. And you can really see a bit of aggression and kind of like, you know, he's being hugged by them. And we had, we don't normally see that from Saka, but we've seen a bit of it over the last few weeks. You know, the little sort mm. of getting a bit annoyed about being fouled loads and really getting involved and celebrating properly. And he's like shouting, come on to the fans. And it's like, I love to see that. I think he's really sort of coming into his own. Um, so yeah, I love that, and I was I was head over heels when I when I saw that goal. Um, and look, maybe we we could have should have had a couple of more a couple more in that first half. Um, yeah, Martinelli. 
I don't know if you if you thought that any of those chance, you know, I think he had five shots in the game or, you know, we had seven in total. He took five of them. He could have had one or two in that first half. Yeah, I mean, in general, he was um, he was fantastic. I know we'll probably get on to sort of that chance later, which was probably the, the biggest chance he had. Um, but you can really sum up how good Martinelli was in this game by asking what did Joao Cancelo do in the game, which you kind of mentioned. And Cancelo, you know, for those who don't know, is, I would say he's been City's best player this season, both in an offensive and a defensive um, like position, I would say, or in offensive and defensive situations. He did absolutely nothing. Martinelli, I think, burned him two or three times inside and outside. Offensively, Cancelo, I don't think, created any chances. He did very little because he was so preoccupied by the threat that Martinelli posed over his shoulder. I mean, it was, it was just fantastic watching, um, watching him go up against one of the best fullbacks in the world and completely win nearly all, if not all, of his one-on-ones. His finishing, look, it will get better with time, but the way he got himself into some of those positions um, was fantastic. And and it's just now having a cool head with your final product, finishing, choosing the right ball. Could he have laid it back on an occasion? I think there was one where Odegaard was free or Saka was free. I can't remember who it was. But um, look, he he's progressing at the at the speed I think we expected him to after his breakout season a few years ago under Emery, would I would have loved him to score, um, but it just wasn't wasn't his day. Look, a lot of things went against us on um, on Sunday, which we'll get into, and and this was again perhaps one that's sort of been overlooked, which was just our general finishing was mm. that half inch or inch wide of the mark, and on another mm. day. You know, that one where Martinelli runs, I think, the length of the pitch nearly and then scoops it narrowly wide or the one where he tries to bend it in the far corner. Sometimes they, they go your way and on, on, uh, on Sunday they just didn't. But what I, again, really pleased with his performance. Yeah, I mean, he was, he keeps saying the word exceptional and we should probably find some, some different uh, words to moving forward because I think we're going to be describing him in that way, in that vein, quite frequently. But... He, he's a guy who you can tell that he's super confident and he is a player who his first thought is, you know, he's a bit of a killer in the, in the final third. He wants to get the ball, he wants to take people on and he wants to shoot. He's a, he's, he's a, he's a guy who takes shots and maybe there is, you know, an element of his game where, you know, he'll know when to pass it a bit more. But I also think, you know, you don't want to sort of uh, repress that, that killer instincts, that, that uh, just sort of natural instinct to go for shots because we've been such a shot shy team. And, you know, I think it does wonders for the crowd momentum for other players. Just like, look, let's get these shots away. And, you know, he was unlucky with that, with that lovely curler. I think that came from a, a Ramsdale brilliant pass and, and the way that Martinelli sort of plucked it out from the sky. It's kind of reminiscent of a few Meza Ozil touches from a few years ago, but, you know, he took the ball down. He absolutely like, you know, Cancelo looked like a schoolboy. You know, Martinelli looked like the experienced uh, sort of goal scoring forward. And, you know, there was the other one where he took it past Cancelo, hold, held onto it for ages and then managed to get a shot away and, and it sort of just crept past the far corner. And then the other one, 
I think that was the one that maybe he could have pulled it back to, to Erdegaard and there was another where maybe he could have rolled it across the goal to Saka, but I think he may have been offside anyway. Um, and to be fair, the Man City players were sort of uh, obstructing that clear um, that clear pass. But yeah, he was a joy to watch. And I think it's so exciting to see his progression. Um, and I think I was listening to the, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to the Ben Foster podcast with Aaron Ramsdale. I listened to it yesterday. Hey, great podcast. Brilliant podcast. And I think, you know, Ramsdale being on there, we got a really good level of insight into sort of, you know, what's going on at Arsenal and and the esteem with which he held he holds Mikel Arteta, but also the words in which he had to describe um, Martinelli, Smith Rowe and Saka particularly. And I don't know about you, but what I got from that was that, you know, these guys are competitive. They, they absolutely, they don't care about who they're playing, where they're playing, what people think of them. They are young players who are seriously confident and sounds as if from what Ramsdale said as well, that, you know, they, they get kicked a lot in games, but they don't mind like, kicking each other in training. That was the impression that I got. And it sounded as if, I think one of the quotes from Ramsdale was like, you know, you've got two of the, you know, youngest, most exciting players and, you know, they're kicking each other in training and they're really competitive. And I think that's such a good insight into sort of just seeing that nasty streak of these players, which, which maybe we're, we're just starting to see a bit, but, you know, they're so young and to see them sort of exert themselves on a Manchester City team like that, I think was, I felt so proud to be an Arsenal fan um, and so connected with these guys because, you know, they're younger than us speaking and they're doing that on a big stage. And I thought it was exceptional, but um, I don't know if there was anything else you wanted to add on Martinelli um, before we get on to a, another few, just sort of stellar performances in that first half, especially. Uh, I think I think Martinelli specifically, I think we've covered um, that there, there's plenty of performances to go around uh, from, yeah. from Sunday. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, just sticking with the sort of attacking players, we've, we've talked about Saka a bit already. I think Lacazette mm. did a brilliant job um, sort of leading from the front, pressing and sort of being that, um, you know, deflecting the attention away from those players and drawing attention towards him. I thought Martin Erdegaard was brilliant, um, actually, in that first half. I thought he pressed, he led by example. Um, look, should he have had a penalty? I thought so at the time. The more and more I see it, the less I am convinced that it looks like Edison probably got the ball before he got the man, but from some angles, it suggests differently. I mean... I still have a bone to pick with why maybe it didn't go to VAR, but by the same token, maybe it is quite, it's not a clear and obvious error, but then you get into all these different conversations. I don't know, but I think, you know, it's easy to see why Arsenal fans and the players and staff felt aggrieved that, you know, Bernardo Silva's uh, penalty was reviewed by VAR and the referee went to the monitor and ours wasn't. I don't know what you thought about that. Well, should we talk about those incidents now or do you want to do them later? No, let, let's do them now then. Um, or no, let's, let's do the... Actually, no, let's save it because I think, yeah, it's, it's wise to sort of talk about them in tandem. Um, yeah. And we'll save that for afterwards. But before that, let's focus on... Um, yeah, Tommy Asu at right back. Um, Raheem Sterling, who's in excellent form and has an excellent record against us and always seems to score against us. And he, I don't think he had a bad game. He actually looked quite threatening. Probably the most threatening of the City players, bar maybe Bernardo Silva. But Tommy Asu dealt with him impeccably. Like, 
He dealt with his threat. He dealt with his movement, his pace, his power. He, he, he dominated him and he won his battle, I think. And, and to have that security in a way that I don't think we've had for a long time, and we keep saying it now, and it's, it's becoming a recurring theme of our performances, like he is essential to the way that we play and the, the security with which he provides and also makes the players around him better. Mm. Oh, completely. I mean, it's interesting that you think Sterling had a good game. I can't remember anything he did. Maybe mm. that's revisionism on my behalf or something, but I just... But testament to Tomiyasu's... Yeah, exactly. Audience. Completely, completely testament to how good Tomiyasu was. I mean, you rightly mentioned Sterling's record against us. I mean, last time they came to the Emirates... They obviously beat us 1-0. I think Sterling scored that, that header where he out-jumped. All of our six-foot defenders uh, holding was sort of the most guilty party in our defence that day. Uh, and then they sort of had 80% possessions pass the ball around us for, for 85 minutes. The one thing Sterling did all game that sticks out to me was he put in that cross for Ruben Dias. He then sort of had that glancing header that went wide. Yeah. But you look at where he took up that the position he took up for that cross, that was sort of middle, mid right hand side of their attacking third, nowhere near Tommy Astu, you know, sort of in between where Xhaka and Tierney would usually be. So it just shows to really have an impact, or it shows to me that to really have an impact, Sterling had to completely vacate um, the zone that Tommy Astu occupied to sort of have any sort of creative threat. And again, that's further testament to how well drilled and how disciplined and how aggressive Tommy Asu was um, on Sunday and, and really has been since he joined from Bologna. He's not put a foot wrong. I was, to be completely honest, I was sort of expecting a game at some point to sort of implode on Tommy Asu and we go, all right, well, here's why he was sort of advertised the most Premier League clubs and here's why we were able to get him very easily on, on deadline day and here's why there were the reservations. But look, it's not come. And he's played Liverpool and look, finally lost 4-0 at Anfield, but I didn't think he had a particularly bad performance. Uh, he's played United and again, he had a bit of a tough time, but it's not like... It's imploded. He had a great game against City and fine, we've lost these games, but individually, he's, uh, he's sort of performed consistently uh, very well and, you know, more and more reminiscent of Sanya to me as the weeks go by. Big time. I, I, and I, I think he's brilliant and, and it's all the better that I keep watching sort of Spurs games and Emerson Royale's just done very little to impress and it's it's even more satisfying to see to see that compared to how well Tommy Asu's done for us. Yeah, and bearing in mind, I think Emerson Royale's transfer fee was almost double that of Tommy Asu's, or just less, or something like that. I mean, not quite. I think yeah. it was something like 20, 25. Tommy Asu's closer to 15, 17. So not double, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, I mean, the biggest thing with Tommy Asu, he's 22. And... Mm. He's got the physically, he's physically brilliant. You know, he's a big guy. He's quick. He's strong. He's good in the air. He's good in the tackle. He gets really low to the ground. And honestly, I think, you know, people are going to start not wanting to come up against him. People will start, you know, targeting maybe the other side of our defense and, and 
maybe that's a bad thing. I don't know. And, and Kieran Tierney, I think, is still good defensively. And we've got Gabriel on that side, which is, I mean, bar the red card, but we'll get on to that. But Tommy Asu, I think people are going to not, not pe- I think Sterling after that game will be like, wow, like I've played this right back who's here to stay. And, you know, we've got him now, hopefully for the long term. And I think he has the physical attributes and also maybe more surprisingly, the technical attributes to thrive in the Premier League. And, you know, he's two-footed, he switches the play regularly. He's actually all right going forward. I think, you know, he's he's got that level of technical assurance whereby he can play those intricate passes into, you know, Martinelli for that Newcastle goal. And I think also he's, um, you know, a, a lot of people talk about how much uh, he's impacted on Ben White sort of settling in. But I think, you know, we're seeing Bakayo Saka play some of the best football of his career. And I don't think that is a coincidence to see you know, he's consistently playing with Tommy Asu on the right. He has more of a license to sort of stay up the pitch. I don't see Saka sort of, you know, he obviously comes back and he presses, but Tommy Asu more, more often than not can sort of deal with the threat on his own on the right-hand side. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think um, maybe on the Arsenal, Arsenal Vision podcast, they mentioned, you know, who, who do you think, you know, when... Uh, when Ben White and Saka, for example, are asked, who do they like playing with? I think they'd absolutely have, they'd be waxing lyrical about Tommy Asu's performances and the and the sort of benefit. He makes other players better. And I think that's a testament to sort of his quality and, and what a brilliant player he is. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm over the moon for him. And he seems like a really nice guy, very sweet, very humble, probably still sort of learning the ropes in terms of an English culture and language, but I'm so pleased for him. And uh I think as a young player, he's one of the guys who impressed most alongside on that right-hand side, sort of seeing, um, you know, Ben White have a really good game and moving on to Thomas Partey, who I think he had his best game in an Arsenal shirt. I think it it, it was better than the Old Trafford performance. That was exceptional too. But this one was, was different gravy. I think a, a level above, he won his duels. He took people on. He made excellent passes. He not made Bernardo Silva. He was running up and down the pitch. He was really, you know, he dominated that midfield against the likes of Rodri, Bernardo Silva and Kevin De Bruyne, which is no mean feat. And so I think, you know, we, we have to focus on his performance as well because there have been signs of his improvement over the last few weeks since, I mean, really Xhaka's return to the team. But, you know, about a month ago, we were, I was, you know, his game against, I think it was... Uh, I think it was in that Man United game. He had a dreadful first half. And I was like, what is going on with this guy? His confidence was on the floor. He rated his own performances four out of 10. He was not, he was giving the ball away. He looked physically out of it. But I think something's clicked now. And it's a shame that now he's going to be away for AFCON. But he was, you could tell that his confidence is back. He looks like he's kind of relishing that responsibility of kind of leading by example and helping these young players express themselves by just being solid and and that oil in the machine. So yeah, a few words on Thomas Partey. Um, yeah, well, I won't use exceptional, so I'll say outstanding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's a synonym. But um, really, really fantastic performance. We've all sort of, I mean, he was given man of the match on BT. He was just completely dominating that that midfield he was i think there was a passage where i think he wins the ball off a throw and 
and sort of lifts the ball. I think it was over either Gundogan or Bernardo Silva's head and then beats another man and then just passes it on. And then there was another point where he picked up the ball and ran sort of 40 yards, carried it up up, up the pitch. Uh, and this was th- these were both instant incidences when we were down to 10 men as well. And he was sort of integral to our effort after the red card and, and not collapsing and, and staying in the game and sort of holding out for a point, which you know, we didn't get in the end, but you know, we pushed it very late. He's consistently been getting better, I think, though, at the same time. Mm. It's, very, it's now you know, very clear, it's apparent to anyone who watches Arsenal on a regular basis that Granit Xhaka makes him a much, much better midfielder. Mm. And I think that goes back to the fact that at Atletico Madrid, he was never the main midfielder. Mm. And he's probably never going, he's 28 now, he's probably never going to be used to being in a midfield where he's seen as the number one. And so maybe psychologically as well as physically and technically having Xhaka next to him makes a big difference because at Atletico, whether it was Koke or it was Sal Niguez or it was, um, God, they had so many midfielders. I, it was Lorente also there when he was there and Garcia, I think, when um, when he was slightly younger and I even Arda Turan maybe. I mean, just so many different midfielders mm. over the years. And Party was almost always there in the shadows doing his thing whether it was sweeping up sort of second balls and just recycling play or breaking up play and getting tackles and using his sort of octopus-like limbs. But, um, but having Xhaka with him clearly calms him down, clearly gives him more confidence to go forward or to play slightly more um, advanced passes and more vertical passes rather than horizontal ones. Mm. And... He, he's been getting better game by game since that sort of Man United Everton blip. But it really came to a head here and he was, he was much better than anything we've seen before. Even that United game at Old Trafford last season, which, which obviously we've mentioned. And it was great. It was really great. And it's just sods law and classic Arsenal that... After that, he's now gone for a month away with uh, with Ghana competing at the African Cup of Nations. And fingers crossed he doesn't pick up an injury because I think if he can come back and continue to put in performances like he did on Sunday, we have a very good chance of finishing fourth and he will be integral to that Champions League effort. Yeah, definitely. I think, look, Thomas Partey is a guy who... I agree with you. He's he's definitely benefiting from playing consistently with Granit Xhaka alongside him and probably Martin Odegaard a bit further ahead. I think that midfield three, um, mm. I think, you know, I've heard it on, I think it was the Ars cast as well. That was the plan probably for this season to have those three in midfield, senior players. I know Odegaard's still young, but as a consistent, experienced platform in the middle of the park for these young players to sort of you know, thrive around. And I think Partey struggled with a lot of things. I think, you know, uh, I think Granit Xhaka in his interview with Amy Lawrence, which I think was a really good, interesting, insightful interview. Um, you know, he he suggested that Thomas Partey was rather burdened by the fact that he was a 50 million pound signing. And, you know, we know he, from the sort of little 
that we have seen of him in doing media and, and he's done a fair bit to be fair, but you can tell he's a humble guy. He's not sort of that outgoing sort of uh, incredibly bold player. He, he, he sort of fits into that system, which he did at Atletico Madrid. You know, Diego Simeone was very much, you know, it's all about the team and, and that team dynamic. And I think Partey has maybe not, it's not been easy for him to be the main man. And I agree with you that when Jack is in the team, I still, you know, I think against um, against Man City, Partey was the main man in midfield, but that was permitted by Xhaka sort of facilitating his, his uh, yeah, his performance. And it's not as easy maybe to do when he's playing, one week he's playing with Mohamed Elneny, the other he's playing with Lekongo, the other he's playing with, you know, Maitland-Niles or, or whoever, and, and maybe Erdegaard wasn't playing at the time. And it's like, now he's got that level of consistency and, you know, I think that he had probably at Atletico Madrid. And, you know, he's he's benefiting from a more stable defence and, you know, he's a good player, but he's playing in a better team now. So I think it's brilliant to start, finally start seeing his his performance levels crank up a bit. And I know it's a shame that he's going to AFCON now, but hopefully he stays fit. Because I also think, you know, we saw flashes of it. Uh, we saw flashes of it last season and then he got injured and then, you know, we rushed him back and then... We saw flashes of it in preseason. Then he got that injury against Chelsea. You know, he was looking really sharp in preseason, and he looked good in that Chelsea game. And then he got really niggly, I think, an ankle injury. It took him a while to come back. And I think he said that he takes time. He's a player who takes time to find his feet and build his confidence. But clearly, it was start. It started to happen. So I'm really pleased for him. Um, look, that's um, let's tie up that that those positives from the first half. I think you know, the collective performance and level of consistency across the whole board, as well as the individuals that we've highlighted, um, was was brilliant. And the connection that I felt watching, I couldn't even watch it on my on, on TV, so I was watching it on my phone, uh, regrettably. But even with that, you know, I I felt that connection with the with the players and I felt the connection with the players and the fans in the stadium and even without Mikel Arteta there. I think that was such mm. a good feeling. And I think Clive mentioned this on the Arsenal Vision podcast, like how we really, you know, it's there. That feeling is there. And it's not something that you can necessarily describe, but it's something that is tangible evidence of the progress that we are making as a club and as a team. And, you know, as as this unity, this unified outfit, which I think Mikel Arteta has, has massively, you know, um, signified that it's really important to him but I think this was a 45 minutes and I know it's slightly ironic that you know we're talking about half of football but you know even the second half I think you can see signs of that as well and the way in which the team played and stayed solid and the way the fans supported them but I I think that was a, a performance which you know I know we've had some good performances in the past but you know that's up there with you know, when we used to play the likes of, you know, I don't know, Bayern Munich at, at their pomp and Barcelona, and maybe that's mm -hmm. slightly dramatic, but we have not played that well against such a good team for so long. And the atmosphere in the Emirates was electric. And I think it was almost a culmination of the progress that we've made recently. And these young players showing that they can do it against the big sides. And I enjoyed that like no other half of football, I don't think, in a, in a different sort of way, because... You know, we've played really well recently against smaller teams and we've done well against Spurs and the North London derby. But that level of consistency in 45 minutes, putting Manchester City, the best defensive and attacking side in the world with 
Guardiola. I, I, it was brilliant. It was it was such a joy. Um, and so, yeah, it was a shame that it kind of unraveled. And I don't know if there was anything you wanted to add on that before we start looking at the the maybe less positive aspects of the game. No, I guess to actually go off of what you said about yes, the first forty five minutes were great. But really, the whole the whole match for me was great, and I was immensely disappointed and frustrated and upset that we sort of lost because I think any Arsenal fan would have taken a point at any point during that game but to lose it in the manner we did was really upsetting but at full time the City players were out of breath they were on the floor they were on their knees they were exhausted and they weren't this wasn't a walk in the park for them and it really reminded me of sort of games from that 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 first project youth period when we were consistently sort of the third or fourth best team in the division by division by quite a way, but we were never pushing whether it was United or Chelsea or, or Liverpool and then City a bit later on at the time mm. to win the league. But routinely, season on season, whoever was winning the league, they'd come out and they'd say, "Oh yeah, that that game against Arsenal was our toughest." They mm. would always say you know they'd either maybe they win marginally or they'd lose marginally or they draw but in the post-game um interviews and at the end of the season they'd all you whether it was a city player or a chelsea player or united player they'd always say well that trip to the emirates when we had a midfield of sort of a young club a young Fabregas, a young Rizik and a young Flamini with a young Adi Bayor up front, mm. they would always say, well, those were the toughest fixtures. And for the first time in maybe, what, we're in 2022 now, so what, six, seven, eight years since that sort of 2008 to 2012 period, um, I had that feeling that we've, really pushed, I think, in my opinion, the best team in Europe on current form right to the end. And, and they're not celebrating and running around. They're just happy that it's done and happy that they got the points and can get out of there because they don't want to be coming back and playing us anytime soon because they know they're not going to get the same result. Yeah. I mean, look, it's. I don't think it's an understatement to say that we win that game if if things stay 11 versus 11 and I know that's hindsight and other things happen in the game and we should have managed it better perhaps but we um yeah the 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 difference that I think that you highlight there between what Arsenal have become especially in these biggest games that you know there were the occasional big performances uh, at the back end of the Wenger era where we, you know, brush aside a United side or a Liverpool or a Chelsea sort of three 0 and we'd blitz them in that twenty minutes. But for a for a whole half um, against a team as good as City, to see them completely nullified and uh, you know they were they couldn't they couldn't play and we the, the contrast of that compared to Arsenal in those big games where we've been pushovers like we we are easy to play against no one fears us and to sort of see that level of performance consistently especially at the Emirates Stadium which I I hope and it seems as if there's really something building there um the synergy between the fans and the players and the and the threat that we have and you know we're we're starting to become a team that maybe people don't want to play against and that in itself is evidence of our progress and you saw 
like you say, it was brilliant to see, even though the sort of Arsenal players were out on their feet and looking devastated, you know, the City players as well were lying on the ground, like exasperated, like, yes, they got the late goal and that was a shame. And I think part of their sort of crazy celebrations in front of the Arsenal fans was just, you know, how hard they had to work for that that win. And, uh, you know, Guardiola after the game was saying they were so much better and they deserve to win. And Rodri in his uh, post-match interview as well was saying we were a lot better and we were. And look, I think we can hold on to that big time, uh, even though it went slightly pear-shaped in a... In a oh, uh, in a kind of devastatingly familiar series of events, which I know it's it's different in a way, and there are contentious points around it, but the way in which that unfolded was was uh, oh, I mean, thinking back on it now, I, I, it happened. All, it all happened so quickly, and I, I I sort of just couldn't believe how quickly that that just dissipated. And even though we stayed in the game afterwards, like the events with which it unfolded were crazy. So let's start with the penalty incident on Martin Odegaard that we alluded to earlier. Um, I initially thought it was a penalty and I thought VAR would overturn the decision of Stuart Atwell. Upon seeing it a few more times on different angles and watching the subsequent sort of discussion about it, I'm not sure that it was a clear-cut penalty. And, and as Stonewall was, for example, I don't know if you saw the... Uh, the uh, Watford Spurs game, but the Lloris one, I don't know how Spurs didn't concede a penalty there. That was clear cut. He didn't get the ball. He got the man, but it wasn't overturned. Um, where where do you stand on this one with, with Erdegaard? I think it was a penalty. I think both were penalties, both Isles and Cities. I've got very little issue with the fact that City were given a penalty. Mm. Um, we'll get to that. I think I've got more issue with the process that it took to give them the penalty with the fact that theirs was reviewed uh, with an on-pitch review and ours wasn't. And that's, that's my main bone of contention in this whole sort of penalty VAR debacle was the fact that in my mind, and from watching countless reviews of both of them, Odegaard was fouled quite clearly by Edison and anywhere on the pitch, that's, that's, a, that's a foul or a free kick and it should have been a penalty. And, and Xhaka... Fouls, fouls Bernardo Silva. Yeah, he's going down before, but the second he's pulling that shirt and you can visibly see that pull, it's game over, it's a penalty. Oh, and, and sticking his leg out, you know, like... Yeah. yeah. For, for me, it was really the shirt pull that sort of sealed the deal and was why I have no um, qualms over them getting the penalty as the end result. As I said, how they got it is, is a different thing. Uh, but yeah, for me, both were penalties... My biggest issue was that there was just no consistency, and we have probably all been listening to um, several VAR-based podcasts over the last week mm. since uh, since this game. So we don't need to get into too much of a lengthy discussion on on VAR, but I don't see why VAR don't or Jared Gillett, who is the VAR in this game, doesn't say to um, to Stuart Atwell, look, just go and have a look at this. Mm. You, you're, you're the ref, then you make the decision. And then says that exact thing to um, him sort of an hour or so later when Bernardo Silva gets fouled. You have to have 
consistency with how the technology is operated. I've got mm. very few issues with the actual technology. Mm. It's people operating it are, uh, are not good enough. And I think we, that's a much more interesting conversation because it's not about VAR, it's about the humans behind VAR. Mm. And so many times you'll, we'll, we'll say, oh, well, it worked amazingly in the World Cup in 2018, or it worked really well in the Euros. Uh, mm. in the summer of 2021. The reason why it worked so well in those international competitions is because the individuals who are in charge of the technology are the best referees in either Europe, in the case of the Euros, or the world, in the case of the World Cup. So obviously, the technology is going to be run smoother when it's being run by more competent, uh, confident, and sort of assured officials. And in the Premier League, we don't have that. We've got 40 or so refs who are all of the same demographic. There's no diversity. I don't think they're particularly good, which is why when we see international tournaments, usually there's only two um, English refs sort of going and officiating major um, international tournaments or even sort of significant Champions League or Europa League games, mm. Michael Oliver, and I can't remember who the other one is. So we've got a dearth of quality in the Premier League when it comes to officials. And that's, that's the main reason why we keep having the same debate and it could be sort of Spurs fans and Watford fans on, on their own podcasts and it can be Arsenal fans on our podcasts. But it's, it, for me, it really just comes back to... Um, the quality of the individual. And I know I'm going off on a complete tangent here, but that was, that's my big issue from, from the Man City game has just been, mm-hmm. look, we need better referees, we need more diverse referees as well, because it's completely illogical to assume that the best referees are all sort of middle-aged and white, because they're not going to be. They're going to be from a diverse mix of backgrounds and age groups and probably genders as well. So let's actually get them refereeing the Premier League, which is the best league in the world in terms of talent, the mm. most competitive league in the world, the most widely watched league in the world, and the most expensive league in the world also to attend on a on a game-by-game basis. It's farcical that we've got such shit... Sorry for swearing, but shit no, refereeing. No, no. no I, think, I think you've put that excellently. Um, and I completely agree with everything that you're saying. And I think an example like this really exposes the, the lack of quality and also the the uh yeah the issues of accountability and why some of these referees who have been in the game refereeing at the top level for so long having made such you know large errors and having been suspended and taken off games and they're still there and they're still making the same sorts of errors and losing control of games and yeah i think it's you know you've got this technology which when implemented correctly will hopefully reap rewards uh, at the same time you know there are plenty of people who have issues with var and and the more that this happens the more that we uh, the, the human side of it are getting the technology wrong and implementing it in a way that causes you know another whole host of issues that sort of undermine the very reason for having it in the first place i think that's when the conversation changes and look i think on the in this particular case i i, I at the time i was completely in agreement with the fact that why are you consulting VAR on one and not the other? And then I think on match of the day, they took quite a different view on it. They sort of said like, look, the reason he's not going to VAR or the VAR officials not telling him to go and have a look is because it's, 
it's not clear and obvious error. And that's the key phrase that they keep using, clear and obvious, but in whose opinion. But I think maybe now that I've I've been looking at it more and I'm saying like, oh, I don't know, is it a penalty? Is it not? Like, I think the Granite Xhaka one, I think James McNicholas made this point as well. It's a more egregious foul um, when Xhaka pulls Bernardo Silva down and sticks his leg out. And in this case, it's unclear as to whether Edison gets the ball first or not and different angles show different things. So I'm less... I still think this has highlighted a serious issue with the technology and, and decision-making process, but the more that I've looked at it and having sort of seen Ian Wright, for example, sort of uh, not be so moved by the initial decision to not award Erdegaard a penalty and then not going to VAR because maybe it's not a clear and obvious error. I don't know, but I think what you said is really important about uh, sort of uh, expanding the... Uh, and improving the quality of the refereeing and not having the same old faces, the same old people making the calls. Um, why should they be sort of so safe in their in their jobs and, and not being held accountable for errors that they make and game management decisions? Um, so, yeah, look, let's move on from that. I think the Jacker one, yes, probably a penalty. And in the moment, I was like, Bernardo Silva's dived. Why are, you not giving, why are you giving that one and not giving the other one? But um, look, I think... Arsenal fans are sort of feeling aggrieved because of certain decisions that have gone our way, but at the same time, you know, that, that it goes both ways. But I think because there's been, you, you've got VAR for finding those like clear and obvious errors or like clear and obvious signs of violent conduct. And you look at the likes of the Ben Godfrey stamp on Tommy Asu's face and James McArthur tackle and, VAR has not been used effectively in those scenarios. And I think because these were kind of like maybe more 50-50 decisions that didn't go our way, we feel very hard done by. And then we move on to the Gabriel sending off, which I think is ridiculous, to be honest. Um, I think the second one is a is a booking. He loses his head. And yes, it's probably a yellow card, but I don't really know why he's got a yellow card in the first place. People were saying that's because he was scuffing up the penalty spot. It wasn't because of that. You know, he was literally, he literally stood on it. Aaron Ramsdale did it as well. He didn't get booked as a direct result of that. After the penalty, there's a swarm of Arsenal players sort of around the ref asking him maybe, why have you given this penalty and not the other one? And then Gabriel sort of jogs up, apparently says something, not dissent, not you know, uh, swearing or anything like that. And he gets booked. And I think the referee has his card out already. He's looking for someone to book because he's being swarmed. Um, what did you make of the first yellow card? And then the second, uh, before we get onto the way in which maybe the referee managed the game um, mm. and a general discussion about like, uh, whether it's too harsh ascending off in this, in this situation. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I, I'm probably still a bit confused as to what that first booking was for. I mean, well, I'm not really because I, the players sort of came out and they said, oh, Gabby was, um, he was booked for a, for a comment to the ref. No one knows what that comment was. I don't have any, I haven't seen it clearly. It's not like it was him by himself. It was, it was almost like a token yellow card for the team and Gabriel was just the victim of it. I think at that point, Gabriel then needs to take responsibility because he shouldn't. The, the, he was flying into that second challenge where he gets um, sent off for no reason. It's on the halfway line. Yeah, Gabriel's turned him, but there's still 
uh, Ben White, Tierney, Tommy Asu and Rams, they're all there. He's, he's sort of 50 yards from goal. He's not in a dangerous position. So it's, it's, a, it's a cynical foul and I think he's lost his yeah. head. I can see why yeah. that would be a yellow card more. Exactly. I think that's a, that is a yellow card challenge. So I, I think once he's been given the first yellow card, which seems completely unjust, he's got to be more careful and, and that, that challenge is always going to result in a yellow card. And Look, he gets sent off stupidly and... I don't, I don't really know what other line Stuart Atwell can take. Maybe he should be more lenient and say, look, I've just booked you here. Mm. This is your final warning. But on balance, I think, and I think if it was the other way around, I don't think Gabriel sent off. And what I mean by that is if he makes that challenge on Jesus, Gabriel Jesus first, and that's his first booking, I don't think he then gets sent off for making a comment if City then go get a penalty. Yeah. I think he then gets taken to one side and said, look, just calm down. You've been booked. Yeah. Next one you go. But because the second foul is so clearly a yellow card, mm. it's always a yellow card, no matter who it happens to or for. It's such a cynical challenge that he leaves Stuart Atwell with no option other than to book him. And, and by virtue of already being booked, he has to go. That, that was sort of my take on things. I think, look, it was very reminiscent of the red card he had against Southampton last season. He, it's a shame because he's been brilliant this season and this is now uh, sort of the only black mark that goes against a really, really outstanding first half to the season for, for him. Probably his, his best consistent period of performances as an Arsenal player. And first but, half performance, I thought he was excellent. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. Well, yeah, and that goes into just the general theme of him being fantastic. Yeah. Coming back into the team. Um, I don't have any worries that he won't, he'll come back into the team sort of, what, for the, uh, hopefully maybe for the first leg against Liverpool, get a bit of match, some more match fitness, match um, preparation. I guess ahead of the North London derby, and he'll, you know, he's clearly our first choice centre back along with Ben White. It, yeah, look, I, I don't really have that much else to say on the red card. It, yeah, it, it, I think yeah, the only thing that I'd add on it is that, um, you know, the way in which it changes the game. And look, he he loses his head, and whether you know, I think the first yellow card is ridiculous, and I think you know, I think Arsenal, I could be wrong here, but I think I saw a stat: we got five bookings, and I think we made like eight fouls or something like that. I mean, maybe we made more, but I think, you know, the margin of the proportion of getting yellow cards to fouls was incredibly high from the referee. And I think, you know, Saka got a yellow card for, I think, again, asking the ref something. And yeah. it's just... Uh, the Saka yellow card. I have no idea yeah. what that And I think that's in a similar vein to the Gabriel one. I think the referee's kind of, you know, he's being surrounded by the Arsenal players and maybe we're doing that a bit much at the moment and they're sort of cottoning onto it. And, you know, it's a... The penalty's been given for City and not for Arsenal and the crowd are getting on their back and maybe the referee is just like, right, I need to, I need to impose my authority a bit and, and uh, Gabriel's maybe the full guy for that. But I think, you know, you, you've already, Arsenal were in such a dominant position and then they go down to 10 men and we're playing, you know, against Man City with, with 10 men. It changes the dynamic of the game completely, even though we played well. And not only that, not only do we, if, you know, if we stay with 11 men, we, we probably win the game even after uh, conceding that goal, or at least it's more of a fair fight. 
But not only do we then lose three points, and then we also lose lose Gabriel for you know the next domestic game. And I just think that's too harsh a punishment for you know two yellow cards. I don't know. Maybe it's it's because I feel aggrieved. But you know, I've I've heard people doing the rounds of sort of saying, "Well, what about Sinbin?" Because you know it's heat at the moment. He's if he sits out for like ten minutes, something like that, and then obviously he needs to decide well what merits a Sinbin, what's not, and it's the whole human sort of subjective opinion. But you know. I just, it's a shame because it was such a good game and I think it just changes it completely. And, you know, we've had issues in the past when, you know, you've got the the double jeopardy rule where someone gets sent off and it's a penalty and it's just far too harsh punishment and it changes the game completely. And I think there is a case to be made maybe for looking at something like this and saying like, well, look, he's been reprimanded. He's got a yellow card, then he gets another, surely missing a game and then, you know, compromising the team's performance in in that particular game as well is maybe a bit much. But look, he gets sent off, we move on. And I mean, I think even before then, we had that crazy uh, break where Laporte nearly heads it into his own goal. Ake clears it off the line and then Martinelli sort of misses the chance. But, you know, in, in real time, I saw that and I was like, oh my God, how has he missed? And then Gabriel gets sent off and then it's all just kicks off and I sort of forget about it. But you, know, you see Stuart Atwell sprinting towards the goal line. And look, Martinelli should maybe still score, but it's not an easy chance. I mean, it's it's easy enough that he should get it on target and control a shot. But, you know, Martinelli has to sort of watch the ball come out to him very quickly. And the Stuart Atwell's like sprinting in front of him and he has to change his direction of his body. And it's just like, what is he doing there? He's trying to see if the ball has, to, has gone over the line. It's like, you've got goal line technology. And, and that... In, in my head is like a clear indication of Stuart Atwell. You know, he's lost his head a bit. He's not making the right decisions. He's not in the right position. So that, in the context of the whole game, is also very, very frustrating um, because we maybe that if he doesn't run across, then maybe Martinelli scores. And, you know, then you don't get the break of Gabriel fouling Gabriel Jesus. I know it's all hypothetical, but, you know, the fine margins, which I think Pep Guardiola spoke about after the game, it's like, he had a crazy one minute where Martinelli misses a chance, Gabriel gets sent off, and then before that, the penalty. So, yeah, I mean, very frustrating. Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't have anything well, to say about the ref in that position. Yeah, that, that I'm just going to add, that um, incident where Atwell was sort of steaming into, into the penalty box like a prime Aubameyang was... Um, <laughs> was really, I think, the most incompetent uh, bit of his refereeing performance on the day. I, I was just astounded by it because it completely changes the makeup of the chance for, for Martinelli because instead of having a straight line to the ball, he now has a curved line to the ball, which will have an impact on how his run, on his run-up and how he hits the ball and ultimately where the ball ends up. I think without that infringement on his vision and on his run, that's a goal every day of the week because then it's a straight line, open net shot about eight yards out. He's not missing that. Mm. Um, and I was just really surprised. What, what is he doing now? I, I, I think it must be because he's trying to see if the ball has crossed the line from Laporte's head over Edison. But as you mentioned, look, he's got goal line technology. It's, you know, if there's one bit of technology we don't have any issues with, it's goal line technology. If that ball crosses the net, uh, crosses the line, we'll all know he'll get a buzz on his wrist. It's a goal. It's black and white. 
the, the, and the other thing is you very rarely see referees in general go into the penalty box. They're, mm. they're pretty much advised you take up a position on the edge of the box on one of the sides because that gives you a, a sort of holistic and broad view of the penalty box in case there's a foul anywhere in the box. You can see it because it's a penalty. It's not like it's something going on behind you. Like if Atwell's on the penalty spot and there's a foul behind him in the box, he can't see that even though that should be a penalty. So it's it's really, I found it really confusing as to why he, in that instant he'd sort of run, almost screamed Martinelli's run, blocked off the chance. And um, and in doing so, had potent, well, had arguably played a significant uh, role in costing Arsenal what should have been a quite clear goal. And, and the fact that we created that chance a matter of sort of seconds after conceding the penalty is further mm. testing the fact that had that game stayed 11 versus 11, we, we no doubt would have gotten back in that game and, uh, and got a second goal because we were playing so much better than them and we were just playing so well in general. So, I mean, just immensely frustrating, really. Mm. And I think, look, let's tie that conversation up with, will he, will Stuart Atwell... You know, we don't know because we don't hear anything from referees and performance reviews and all the rest of it. But he will he be held accountable for that error of judgment? Like it's clear that, you know, regardless of the whole game and VAR and whether he's made the right decisions like that, will that sort of in-game moment, which is, you know, he hasn't done something officially wrong, but like he in a way he has. And, and, and will he be held accountable for that? Because that's a poor moment from the referee in terms of, his positioning, his experience and level-headedness to sort of manage the game from a play position where he should be and not sort of sprinting into the box, trying to get on the end of the, the loose ball, you know? Um, look, even when we went down to 10 men, as you said, we, we played very well. I thought City had a lot of the ball, but I think we largely controlled their threat. I don't think they looked that threatening. I mean, even the... Even the late goal, I think it's quite a lucky break. I don't think Holding covers himself in too much glory sort of with his clearance and maybe Thomas Partey doesn't follow the run of Rodri and look, he does well to get into the box and and into the position where he can get a shot on goal. But, you know, contrast that to sort of previous occurrences where we've gone down to 10 men and we completely fold over and capitulate. Um, I think we did very well and it was really gut-wrenching to see. It was almost inevitable in a way to sort of have seen how good we were and all the rubbish that went on and then they score, you know, 90 plus three minutes. I don't think they've scored a, late, a goal as late as that since Sterling scored a super late goal to sort of land them the title a few years back. Um, but I don't want to dwell too much on it because, look, we've we've spoken so much about the positives um, and I think those are the main things that we want to focus on from this game. Um, look, we, we've talked about the moments, we've talked about some broader issues as well and, and broader sort of uh, reflections we can extrapolate from the game. You know, we've mentioned Thomas Partey, we've mentioned Tommy Asu and Erdegaard. We've talked about Martinelli um, and even Bakayo Saka as well. I think, you know, I'm just, I know everyone loves him, but he is, uh, the fact that they're both 20 years old, Bakayo Saka and Martinelli um, is, is, uh, (laughs) is brilliant. Like they, they, we could have on our hands, or maybe we do have on our hands, two of the outstanding young talents in the world, let alone in the league. And I think three, three with Martinelli, 
with Martinelli and and uh, Saka and maybe Smith Rowe and, and then Erdegaard as well. They're all so young and <clears throat> it is so promising and exciting. So look, I think let's um let's talk quickly about uh Granite Xhaka then, because I think you know, we've talked about his his uh importance to the to the team and, and especially in terms of Thomas Partey's sort of improved performances. And also, you know, he did have a good game, but it sort of sums it sums him up, doesn't it? That he he played a really good game. He was, I think he was passing the ball quickly. He defended really well after we went down to 10 men. He was aggressive, but he fouled Bernardo Silva. And in a way, his reputation sort of precedes him in the sense that Bernardo Silva, who's a very good player, smart player, he probably sees Granit Xhaka in the box. He's like, look, I'm going to take him on. He'll probably dangle out a leg. He's not very mobile. And let's see what happens. And I think that is a weakness that will not, go away from his game and I think he's still probably good enough for now to maybe have play a part in this team where the positives maybe outweigh the negatives because he does bring a lot to our performances but I think there's a limit to which he can contribute towards us and I and I do think hopefully we'll try and sort of evolve away from Granite Xhaka but I mean it, it yeah this summed him up in a nutshell didn't it uh, yeah, I mean, the, the game epitomised Xhaka, really yeah. did. I think, you know, he's not changing. Um, I think most Arsenal fans probably come to terms with that over the last year because I think it would be fair to say that the 2020-21 season, last season was probably Xhaka's best season in a, as a whole for Arsenal. And look, aside from the classic Jacarisms of his of his game. He's mm. been very good by and large. Uh, and, and again, and that's what this game summed up for for 89 minutes. He was great. He was marshalling the midfield, him and Party linked up well. He was spraying passes, breaking up play. Um, and then he gives away a penalty. And that's just what he does. Mm. And again, I think you're completely right. For now, the, the pros of Jacker do outweigh the cons. But we clearly, I think we clearly are looking to move away from him. I think you could tell by a lot of the, not transfer activity that we did last summer, but a lot of the names we were linked with, I think we, you know, we were very heavily linked with Ruben Neves and I, I would love us to sign Ruben Neves. I think he's a fantastic um, midfielder at Wolves who would be a great Jack replacement. And I think within the next 12 to 18 months, you'll see this midfield evolve away from Xhaka and the next centre midfielder we sign, um, which you know, will hopefully be in the summer, will be a starting left-footed centre mid to replace Xhaka. And Xhaka will then occupy um, a significant role off the pitch in the way that he hinted at he did um, during his injury, which I thought was really interesting, a bit of insight that mm. he was asked to sort of be around the team whilst recovering and going through rehab, but on on the pitch he'll sort of be less important, and 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 I don't doubt that Edu and Arteta and the whole recruitment team at Arsenal are aware that we need to move away from him now because he's been here for five seasons. But I think it's now going to be done in a far more harmonious way that we're not just mm-hmm. going to sort of cut the cord with Xhaka. We're just sort of phasing him out. And mm. while he continues to perform pretty well, despite his sort of occasional um, mishaps, 
which is probably an understatement. Mm. He, he does do a job. And if he can help party reach his height, then, mm. it, then it is also worth uh, having him in the team. Yeah, I think just to finish on Xhaka, I think I'm not sure he's the kind of player who, if we were to sign a replacement, I don't know if you keep Xhaka <laughs> around, to be honest, because I don't know if he'd stand for it. And rightly so, maybe, you know, he's more than capable of playing in a starting eleven at quite a decently high level around Europe. Um, you know, Roma obviously interested him last year and, you know, I know he's going to go to Hertha Berlin before and when they had a lot of, load of money, but, you know, he could still do it. But I think, you know, he's got a reputation. He is a target um, to other players. People target him both as his short fuse, but also he's going to make clumsy mistakes or fouls. I also think that there have been signs over the last few weeks, even though he's been playing very well and playing, making Partey play well, he could have easily have got sent off for that tackle on Rafinha. I thought that was a really nasty tackle in the Leeds game. There's been moments where he gives the ball away. Normally, he he will be quite consistent in a game and there won't be signs of that sort of rashness. But I think more recently, he's been very good. But there's been an incident pretty much every single game where you're like, oh God, like, well, just what are you doing? And um, yeah, I think... You know, you basically you want to say in the summer, you want to sign a player who does what Xhaka does, good on the ball, disciplined, experienced, but he doesn't have the negative Xhaka components to his performances. So um, quick word on Emil Smith-Rowe, because I think he will play against Nottingham Forest and he will play against Liverpool. I thought he came on and maybe it was the game state. But he didn't quite look as energetic as maybe he has done in the last few games when he's come on. Maybe there's nothing to read into it. But do you think there might be a slight issue of how does he get back into this team um, at the moment? Because you don't drop Erdegaard, you don't drop Martinelli or Saka um, unless one of them gets injured. But I know, And I know he'll get plenty of minutes, especially now that Partey's gone. And, you know, it's funny and ironically, we're going to need Granit Xhaka more than ever at the moment. Um, so any words just on as Mill Smith very quickly before we, uh, we sort of look ahead and, and finish up for today? Um, honestly, not really. I, I, I think patience and he gets into the team. I don't think he had the same impact um, off the bench against Man City that he has done in the last three or four games for obvious reasons. We we're playing Man City. We were down to 10 men. Yeah. And I know that's sort of um, not necessarily sort of most insightful answer, but I just... I think there are some things that are worth looking into in further detail and really scrutinizing and analyzing. I don't think this is one of them. I just think he's, um, he's been fantastic. And when a player comes off against the best on to the pitch, sorry, not off the pitch, when a player comes on against the best team in Europe for a team that are a man down, I mean, what, what, what impact are we expecting him to have? Yeah, he kept the ball, kept things taking long. I don't think he did anything wrong. Yeah. Um, he'll, I, I'd be extremely surprised if he doesn't start the next two matches. And I guess if he doesn't start against Liverpool, then he might start against Spurs. So, you know, he, he's going to get game time. It's mm. you know, just over a year ago, no one was talking about Smith Rowe. Mm. No one. He was, was he going to go out on loan in the January window to sort of get his fitness? That was the conversation we were having. Yeah. Um, so in a year's time, he's gone from being basically completely out of the picture to being our number 10, signed a new contract, um, 
full England international, scored for England on his debut. It's like... It's an important period for him to go through, perhaps. Yeah, I, I really have no issues with him being rotated out for the next... No, neither. I'm just wondering whether he might start to have an issue, but I, I don't think he will. I don't think so. I really, I would really be surprised if he does. He doesn't seem the, side of the type of character that would. Martinelli's had his time on the side. Saka had it. I mean, literally the day after Saka signed his contract extension in the 2019-20 season, we, we didn't see him again. He didn't even get on the pitch in the FA Cup yeah. uh, semi-final or final, I believe. And we didn't see it. The last, we, we probably only saw him in the community shield at the start of the next season. So Arteta does this. He, he, he knows, I think, how to handle these, these young players, maybe slightly better than other managers. I think he's learned a lot from Guardiola's handling of Foden and um, maybe Ferran Torres, who, although is sort of clearly a slightly uh, spikier character who really sees himself as sort of, I could be the next best player in the world. And, Therefore, wants to go off and leave Barcelona's front line, mm. but um, I, I think you look at how he and Guardiola handled Foden at City and and Sane as well, who was very young at the time, and um, and Gabriel Jesus, who was also very young at the time, and and then you look at how Arteta's taken that approach to Saka, Martinelli, and Smith Rowe, and it's it's normal. It's not like they've fallen out. He's just on the bench. He's he's the twelfth man. He's basically the first sub to come on in every game. Yeah, it is what it is. No, I agree. I agree. Um, I think that's that's uh, that's what it is, and I don't think we should read anything into it. Um, look, let's let's uh, let's sum up sort of what we were discussing. I mean, I think Man City had nothing really. I mean, they got two goals from two shots on target. I think we deserve to win the game. Um, all those moments in the game, it didn't swing our way, unfortunately. On another day, maybe it does. But as I said, I'm so positive about the way the team performed and the feelings that came up inside me were, were so so joyous to, to experience, to be honest. And I can't wait to sort of have more moments like that, I hope. And I hope that the players as well, you know, sort of find a way of processing this in a positive way. And I'm sure they will. Um, and I think... You know, Arteta will be very proud of them. Um, and these young players are are outstanding. And the senior players are sort of hitting those required levels to facilitate their, their excellent performances, um, even if they are carrying us somewhat. But, you know, the senior players are doing what they need to do. Um, look, let's have a quick look ahead then. So we've got Nottingham Forest on Sunday in the FA Cup as it stands. I expect to see a rotated side, you know, Bernd Leno coming in. Nicola Pepe starting as Mill Smith Rowe, probably Eddie and Ketia as well. Um, perhaps we'll see what happens with him in the transfer window. I think uh, Balogun's off uh, to Middlesbrough on loan, which I think would be a good move for him. Um, so I think we'll see some rotation. We'll probably see Sammy Lukonga come in. He needs to start getting minutes to, into his legs. Um, it looks like Maitland-Niles is off to Roma on loan, which I think we'll, we'll save that for another podcast because it's quite a weird one and we'll focus more on transfers on another day. Um, yeah, hopefully we, we, we can play that game and, and get a win. I think it would be good to sort of get to the next, next round of the cup. And then we've got Liverpool uh, in the first leg of the Carabao Cup semi-final um, on the Thursday before the North London Derby on Sunday. So it'll be interesting to see how we manage that. I think we'll go relatively strong against Liverpool, to be honest. But we've also got five subs. So hopefully we can sort of come through that relatively unscathed. I think it's a shame we don't have Thomas Partey for the Spurs game. That could be 
a bit of a loss, but look, it is what it is. And then obviously Northern and Derby, massive. Um, and we'll talk about that more towards the time. I mean, Spurs lost 2-0 to Chelsea last night in the first leg of their semi-final. I think they got a bit better in the second half, but I think they were relatively abject and 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 poor. So look, I mean, we like Spurs when they lose. Um, well, we don't like it. We don't like Spurs. We like it when Spurs lose. And then, yeah, we've got Liverpool second leg and Burnley, which has been moved to the Sunday as opposed to the Saturday. So there's lots of football. Um, there's a potential cup final on the horizon. Um, I think, you know, it would be it would be great to see us carry this momentum from the City game into a big game like the North London derby. We haven't won at White Hart, I mean, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, I think since, uh, I mean, I know we won in the Carabao Cup, but I don't think we've won there since maybe Thomas Rosicki scored that, that only goal. Um, mm. You know, we've got a few draws there over the last few years, but we don't tend to do particularly well there. Um, so I think there's a real chance maybe to sort of win that game and bear in mind that they're, they're sort of breathing down our necks a bit in the fight for that sort of fourth, fifth place spot. Um, any words on sort of the upcoming fixtures and sort of how you think maybe Mikel Arteta will manage the squad and uh, what you sort of want out of these games? Well, I think we'll see a lot of rotation for the weekend. I'm surprised that the Maitland-Niles deal has moved ahead so quickly because I would have had him as a shoe-in to sort of play tonight had the game gone ahead and definitely against Nottingham Forest. Yeah. From the training pitchers, seen Amari Hutchinson's in first-team training, Charlie Patino, as we know, is in first-team training. Yeah. Um, Balogun is also about to go out on loan, so that sort of rules him out of... Um, of featuring against Liverpool or or um, or Nottingham Forest, but I'm not as I'm not as concerned about that. I think we saw from the Sunderland quarterfinal that Balogun desperately needs a loan spell in men's football, yeah. and Middlesbrough are, are, are a top championship side yeah. or a top half championship side. That's exactly the level where he needs to be yeah. operating. So that's good. Um, personally, I would love us to sort of offer. It's uh, it's sort of I think it's the eight year anniversary or the ten year anniversary today of when we gave Henri a two month loan contract. I would love us to do something similar with Wilshire, um, just <laughs> or Aaron Ramsey, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, Aaron Ramsey, who's turned down Burnley's contract um, last in the last few days, but maybe he'd be open to a return to Arsenal. Uh, I, I I think Wilshire, who's obviously been training with us now sort of weekly for the last three, four months. Give him a month, you know, to the start of February. Play him against Forest. Play him in the next round of the FA Cup if we get through and have him on the bench uh, in the Carabao Cup games, uh, you know, to rotate with Lukonga or something. I would love to see that. Um, I think most Arsenal fans would and, and what a story yeah. that would be maybe and, and in terms of galvanising the fan base. And look, I don't think it will happen because... If it were to happen, it probably would have happened already. But you can see the logic of a short-term solution, maybe for just a few games, and you pay him on a pay-as-you-pay basis or something like that. But yeah, it would it would massively sort of contribute and align with the sort of the positive feelings that are going on at the club at the moment. <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, I would be all for it, but I think, as you say, it's unlikely. Maybe if Wenger was still at the helm, yeah. um, he'd probably be signed and. 
and Smith would be stripped of the number 10 <laughs> number momentarily to give back to him. But, you know, we're not in the era of re-signing Lehman and Campbell and Henri and Flamini yeah. um, like we were. I, but, you yeah, know, uh, yeah, more seriously, I think, again, just build on consistency. Can't be, you know, even if we play a weekend team against Forest, which I'm sure we will, you know, a few seasons ago we played Forest and we got torn apart by them in the FA Cup oh, and it was oh, a really yeah. embarrassing performance. And we can't have anything like that happening again. Again, we need to um, we need to make sure we sort of put them to the sword and progress in the FA Cup. It's, it's a sort of prestigious trophy. We're obviously the most successful club in its history. Something we should be taking seriously, especially without European football. Then on to Anfield. I think that's going to be an interesting game because for the reason of that there's no away goals, but if we can go there and just sort of not get hammered, and if we you know take a sort of decent result back to the Emirates, then we're we're in with a good chance of getting to to the final of the Carabao Cup. I think also just just on that one, I think it would be having seen what happened in the Liverpool game in the league where we played decently well for the first half and then got torn apart. I know it's a different cut, but to go back to Anfield with pretty much the same team, you know, without Aubameyang, but playing a bit better as well. And then without Salah and Mane, I think that could be a really important step for this team to use that Carabao Cup opportunity to sort of go revisit Anfield and sort of do what they did for a bit, but try and not, you know, lose the game, for example. So yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a it's an important one to maybe try and do well in. Yeah, but then look, they're all sort of drowned out by the significance of the North London derby, which we'll speak about close to the time. It's imperative that we don't pick up knocks to any senior players who will be instrumental in in that North London derby um, performance in the next few games, whilst balancing that with maintaining sort of harmony in the camp and you know positive results and look, a positive result is very much let's beat Nottingham Forest and then you know even if we sort of have a good performance at Anfield but lose 2-1 or draw 1-1 or something or 0-0 it's good enough we take that in the bag go back to the Emirates and, and sort of hopefully turn them over on our patch where we've had a really good record so far this season yeah but, for me, the focus is how do all of these games impact the North London derby? Yeah. And that, that's a tricky line to balance. Yeah, I think with the North London derby, um, I think you can hopefully use that Liverpool game, the away game, as a sort of, uh, you know, we, we've struggled on the road in the big games. You know, the last time we came up against teams we were maybe expected to compete against, Man United and Everton, those two away games in a row, they were disastrous. We lost both games. They were too much for us, but we've made good strides since then. We've beaten Norwich and Leeds on the road. I know they're not the same sorts of games, but if we can do decently and hold our own against Liverpool in the Cup, then I think we can go to Tottenham feeling a bit more confident. I think, you know, uh, it, it's dangerous sort of saying this because I was feeling this the same before the United game. But it's like, you know, don't lose the game. Um, I think we are capable of beating them and how huge that would be. But they're still dangerous. They're still very experienced. Antonio Conte is a very experienced manager. They've got Kane and Son who are, you know, as good as anyone on their day. It's still a dangerous tie, but I think you just just don't lose the North London derby, um, obviously. But 
who knows it's it's always such a big occasion and I think we we can feel confident going into it hopefully by keeping everyone fit and healthy um but yeah look lots of football over the next coming weeks and I'm sure we'll talk again soon um I think we'll leave it there for today um so as as always a pleasure Johnny unless you had anything else to add um on anything that we've discussed no I, th- I think my voice is is going out <laughs> seizing up, up. yeah well, I'm, I mean, we'll, we'll touch base again soon sooner rather than later I'm sure definitely well I hope you you feel better and and um yeah wishing you a, a speedy recovery and we'll catch you again soon a quick reminder actually that you can now find every episode of that sums it all up on uh Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Mixcloud as before. Be sure to follow the podcast as well on Twitter at That Sums It All Up uh, with a one in it instead of an I. That was professionally done. And then on Instagram, we've launched our our Instagram page, uh, That Sums It All Up Pod. So be sure to follow that. We've got some, we'll be keeping you up to date on everything on there. I mean, funnily enough, since launching on all those uh, platforms, you know, the, the podcast was up in the charts, uh, number 43 in uh, the Apple podcast rankings for football podcasts. So I think, you know, thanks to everyone who's been listening. Uh, it's very, very kind of you. And, and we've got some very exciting things coming up in January, transfer related podcasts. We've got some special guests. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really exciting time for the podcast. Um, and thanks to everyone who's been listening and also to Johnny for his uh, work on it you can find johnny on twitter at johnny rosen one and be sure to follow football transfer news on facebook and football transfer news underscore official on instagram for all your january transfer news maybe he'll break the jack wilshire story who knows as always thanks for listening happy new year to everyone hope everyone's staying safe thanks for listening and until next time take it easy goodbye